for the work we do, it, it's got to be simple and straightforward. Again, not earth shattering back to sort of who our customers are. We don't need things to be super flashy. I mean, we want everything to look good and on brand and, and clean, but our digital properties are more about task completion. We do a fair amount of marketing and you know trying to cross promote and things like that. But at the end of the day, our customers are mostly, and particularly in the app, they're using it to complete tasks. So keeping those kind of pathways clean and, and intuitive and without barriers is, is kind of the most important thing for us. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. Hello. On this episode, we have my old colleague, friend, and John Yesko, who is now the head of user experience and service design at Walgreens. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. Thanks. Good to, have, good to be here. Yeah. So, so for those people maybe listening from abroad and stuff, could you tell us about Walgreens? I'm very familiar with Walgreens and then also what you do there. Sure. Yeah. So Walgreens, like you sort of indicated people in the U.S., probably can't avoid Walgreens if they tried, but it's, I think, the, the second largest pharmacy after CVS in the U.S. has about 9,000 locations around the country. The company's based in Chicago, where where I am right now, and I think started in 1901, if I have my dates right. So it's it's been around a long time. <laughs> Evolved from kind of a corner store, and you know, one pharmacy to two to, you know, kind of grew over the years to its huge size now. Where I'm involved is a little bit less on the side of the 9,000 stores, but more on the digital and omni-channel side of things. And we can talk more about stores later because we do have some involvement. But my role is, as you mentioned at the top, the head of user experience and service design. So I have a team of about 70 people or so, right? Most of those people are designers of one kind or another, uh, user experience designers, UI designers. Uh, we have copywriters. We have a research team and we have some service designers and really our domain is a couple of things. We work on the consumer side of Walgreens, which for us means our walgreens.com website, as well as the Walgreens mobile app. And then part of our team also works on store team member facing experiences in, in our stores. The team members there use a uh, mobile device, tablets, and handhelds to kind of run the store and provide customer service and that kind of thing. So uh, we work on that experience as well. Got it. Yeah, my, my experience with Walgreens seems pretty low tech. I, I have the app and actually I've been meaning to check it out. My, my wife uses the app. And so it's good to, to know that you're working on it. What what percentage of the people, you know, I think I read something around the lines of like 8 million customers each day you guys serve according to like Wikipedia or something? Yeah. I mean, if, if that's what Wikipedia says, I'm sure it's true. <laughs> yeah. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but yeah, yeah, I mean, millions and millions of people walk in the stores every day, but also use our, our digital, yeah. but, but it actually brings up a sort of, I don't know if it's unique, but like a, a important nuance to the work we do, which is that while we have established um, pretty good digital tools. Uh, like our app has been a five-star app for a while and the website does well too. Most of our 
customers do end up in the store at some point in their journey. So it's pretty rare that our customers have a digital only experience with us. And the exception is we do some amount of like direct e-commerce, you know, we're on the retail side where customers will order retail products and have them shipped directly from, from the distribution centers. But the vast majority of our digital interactions are in somehow related to a store trip. So the biggest, probably most obvious one is that our customer might use the the app or the website to refill a prescription and then they go to the store to pick it up either inside the store or through the drive through We also launched last year a retail pickup program where we, again, enabled by digital. So orders are you know assembled and placed on digital, but we have a 30-minute expected promise time for either a curbside pickup or delivery. So again, you know, that whole omni-channel aspect of what we do is super important because we can get the digital experience right. But if if the service is not fast and accurate and all those things at the store, then the whole experience, you know, just ends up kind of sucking and, and it it doesn't really matter how good the digital experience was. Yeah. You seem to be the perfect guy running this because one, you have a degree in the College of Art and Design, and then you also have a master's in applied health sciences. So the healthcare plus design makes you kind of the, the perfect fit for this. <laughs> yeah, let's let's say that's true. Sure. That yeah. sounds good. Oh, just out of curiosity, what's what's the what's the relationship with Walgreens and Boots? Uh yeah. So it's been six, seven years, but so for those who don't know, Boots is a large pharmacy chain in the primarily in the UK, but they have locations in other places in Europe and a few other countries. So a while back, uh, Walgreens and Boots essentially merged the companies, forming what we call Walgreens Boots Alliance. So Walgreens Boots Alliance is now the parent company over Walgreens, over Boots, and over another part of the company that uh, has to do with uh, wholesale pharmaceutical distribution, which I believe actually was recently sold or is being sold. So again, Wikipedia can answer that question. But <laughs> but yeah, so we're Boots and Walgreens are essentially sort of like sister companies within the Walgreens Boots Alliance umbrella. And, and some people ask, and maybe you were going to ask like sort of, you know, what's our relationship yeah. in what we do with boots. And I was know, gonna to go be, there. <laughs> yeah. So to be frank, we, we actually don't have a lot to do with boots. Like we've their operation and the way they handle digital and, and omnichannel and and also for sure like at the design level, they mostly keep that localized in the UK and and and, and kind of do their own thing. So our connection uh, with them tends to be more at like some of the corporate functions. So like IT is a global function and sure. human resources and things like that. So more organizationally, but the work that our team does is, you know, 98% uh, on behalf of the Walgreens brand. We have in the past a little, you know, spent a little time helping them out with their mobile app a few years back and just sort of doing some consulting and, you know, helping, but by and large, their separate practices. And, and we've talked about you know, ways that we might think about merging them in some way or creating kind of a center of excellence around design that goes across the whole company, but it hasn't really happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I ask is I, I spend uh, some time in Asia and whenever I'm back in Thailand, it's, it's boots everywhere. So like, oh, that's interesting. Walgreens and boots and, you know, they're essentially related. And it, so it's, it's good to see that. Yeah, and as much as they are also a pharmacy and also have a retail operation, I mean, there are some pretty significant differences. I mean, like the store itself is pretty different. If you walk in mm -hmm. a store, it tends to be a higher end. They, they're mostly on high streets and they don't have a um, like discounty feel as much as Walgreens sometimes does. And part of that is they have a huge uh, beauty business. Like, so they're the Boots 
boots owned brand and beauty is called uh, number seven. And it's last I heard like the largest beauty brand in, in the UK, even though it's essentially a store brand. And then on the pharmacy side, you know, at the end of the day, a, a patient getting their medication is sort of a universal experience. But the process is also very different because they have, you know, national health care. And so the process of going to a doctor and getting a prescription and paying for it and insurance and all these things are very different there than they are in the in the US, which I think is frankly one of the reasons why we haven't kind of um, merged our, you know, working together as much. Yeah. 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 It's a very different experience. Like a lot of Walgreens are in strip malls here and standalone stores versus boots are usually in Thailand found in a shopping mall or department store. How did you uh, get into, let's go back a little bit and how'd you get into design? Yeah. So I can go way back, I suppose, to, uh, I mean, in undergrad, I started out as an engineering major and it wasn't a great fit. I think I went into it because like I was a good student in high school and that's what you did. You know, you went into a difficult field, but um, it didn't quite stick for me. This was at University of Illinois in Champaign. And so after, I don't know, a year and a half or so, I switched into the design program, which had always been more of a passion of mine, not from any like formal training, but just because I was okay at it. And I mean, at this time it was, you know, very traditional design and drawing and, and things like that. As much as I enjoyed that switch when I got out of undergrad, I discovered that an undergrad, you know, drawing and painting major bachelor's degree didn't get you a whole lot in terms of the job market. So I went to grad school and I went uh, to University of Illinois, Chicago into a very small kind of obscure field called medical illustration. And that's exactly what it sounds like, which was specialized in creating illustrations and animations and things in the medical space. So anything from illustrating a surgery because the surgeon wanted to publish it in a journal to medically related illustration for like, say, a, a magazine or a pharmaceutical ad or any of these kinds of things. So I went to a two-year program in that space, which was sort of partial, like half, you know, kind of illustration techniques and half like medical. Like we we took dissection, anatomy and histology and all these things essentially alongside first year medical students. So got a, a deep, as much as you can in the master's program, deep scientific basis as well as the artistic or illustration side of things. So when I came out of that program, it really kind of coincided and this will it will be where I reveal my age a little bit, but like it really coincided with the computers first being used for creative purposes. So, you know, the, the early Macs were coming out and, you know, I think Adobe Illustrator 88 came out and, you know, early versions of Photoshop and something called Corel Draw that was on PC platform. So I remember Corel Draw? Yeah. And and, and the, at the time, I mean, the, using a computer for illustration or design was unusual enough that like, you know, it's a, a strange little story, but like when I was a medical illustrator, we had a, they had these annual like uh, con convention where there'd be a competition for like, you know, some of the best illustrations that you had produced in various categories. And one of the categories was computer illustration, which seems silly because, you know, like today we would never say like, you know, this website won in the category of computer websites, right? I mean, like, <laughs> or even in graphic design, you know, you wouldn't win an award for the best brochure created by a computer, right? So, but it was a novelty enough. But anyway, as I got into my career, the timing sort of coincided, A, with computers being used a lot more. And then uh, shortly after with the web becoming an actual, you know, public 
phenomenon, right? So I I pivoted pretty early in my career into designing for the web. And, you know, back then we were just called web designers and, you know, some of the early websites. I was working in a couple of different agencies, helping push out some companies' early versions of websites, which if we looked at now would seem super comical, I think. And then, you know, a few years later, some of these specializations that we know about now, like, hey, you're a UI designer, or you're a user experience designer, an information architect, like these roles and jobs became a real thing. So I definitely gravitated toward the UX space. And if I kind of trace it back to my back and forth careers in college, I think, you know, some combination of the left brain and right brain side of things took me there, meaning like, you know, I had some uh, design chops, but also was interested in, you know, understanding how people think and navigate and how, you know, digital systems work and things like that. So, yeah. So then I spent a few years in different agencies and one of them was where you and I met at Round Arch uh, back in... I don't know, 15 years ago, probably something like that, (laughs) you know, where we were working on web and mobile solutions for, for kind of big, hairy digital problems. Very cool. And how'd you get the uh, job at Walgreens? Yeah. So I I had been at RoundArch and I was, you know, working on our client projects, leading UX um, engagements and I got recruited to Walgreens. So they had, at the time, this is in 2010, they had really kind of committed to uh, bringing digital in-house and kind of building that capability. So they had made a couple of key like executive hires. They brought in a, uh, probably at the time, she was like a SVP of digital, something in that realm. So they, they recruited me and it sounded like a great opportunity to come and start a team. They didn't really have an in-house team at all. And, and I think, you know, honestly, like if you kind of look back, it was near the time when there sort of started a trend where more more companies were starting to build in-house teams rather than relying so much on agencies and things like that. And I mean, I don't think I was aware of that trend at the time, but but it just sort of accidentally coincided. Yeah, they recruited me. It was a, I wasn't looking for something, but it kind of came along. And like I said, it was a good opportunity to kind of start a team from the ground level. And, and you know, I guess the other piece was having been in consulting and agencies, and I'm sure this is something that might resonate with you, is that it was a nice switch to be able to kind of dig into one product, call it very broadly, and really kind of dig into that and work on that full-time. So, you know, in, in consulting, as much as you form really good relationships with your clients, you at some point you walk away because your engagement's over, right? And sometimes that's great, depending on the client, having the opportunity to kind of dig into a portfolio and build the team around it and, you know, learn things along the way and leverage that knowledge going forward was attractive to me at the time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very different personalities almost, right. One with agency, I think it's, it's all, it's a lot about breadth, right. You, you know, just looking at your client list back in the day, right. You, you know, we worked with Northern Trust and a bunch of other brands. And like you said, when the engagement's over, you, you kind of move on, but you don't really get to go deeper. You don't get to follow on like, well, did my designs ever, you know, a lot of times, sometimes, you know, you don't even get to see the design go live. You, you've already moved on to another project. So yeah. it's, it's really not, not great to necessarily not understand or see how your work has impacted yeah, yeah, and that's actually what you just said is super important, and it's one of the things that when we're rec- recruiting people, which is a huge challenge these days, just because of the way the job market is. I mean, one of the things that we make as sort of part of our pitch is that 
almost 100% of the work that you do is going to find its way out in front of customers at some point. And, you know, because we, we prioritize what we're going to work on and we're responsible for the design and our colleagues are the product folks and the engineering folks and that. So we know that things are going to be launched. Whereas, like you said, back in the consulting days, you might design something and put a ton of, you know, burn a lot of calories, putting it together and it may never get launched, may never see the light of day. Right. And that's, that was always a frustrating experience. And the other thing I'll say about that kind of difference between consulting and being in-house is that I definitely feel like if I were to go back to consulting ever, having been in-house is a huge advantage. So in other words, like I think if I had ever worked in-house before being a consultant, it would have made me a better consultant because I I think, you know, and, and maybe part of this is just like the nature of consulting, but I feel like back then we always sort of had this attitude whether we said it out loud or not, that like these clients don't know what they're doing. We're going to come in and like save them <laughs> from themselves and tell them what they should be doing and, you know, basically help them like get their act together without kind of appreciating the, all of the constraints that are existing inside companies, you know, whether it's financial or legal or brand or resources or whatever it is. So, you know, having been, in a large company now for 11 years, I, I definitely have a lot more appreciation for all of the the constraints and considerations within a company that if I had a, a little bit more of a more open mind about that as a consultant, I think I probably would have yeah. been even better yeah. at it. I, I totally agree. Uh, I've come to the realization similar to you that it's not that they're incompetent and we have to show them, you know, usually a big, like, like you said, you know, your, your company, Walgreens over a hundred years old, 120 years old. There's just, so much inertia and so much bureaucracy that that gets in its own way. And I think a lot of times why they hire outside agencies is because we don't come with all that baggage. We can kind of do stuff outside that would necessarily just get shot down. It would just never happen right within the organization. And that's really the value of using agency sometimes. I I think you're right. I mean, there's a, a, there's an advantage to coming in sort of, um, I don't know what the word is coming in uneducated or, or <laughs> blissfully ignorant or even pretending to be so, so that you can ask questions from the outside that might not get asked internally or, and ask why and why that and why that. And what would happen if we tried this, you know, some of those things that if you're in-house, you may have already discarded them in your head and said, well, right. we tried that before. We can't do that for this reason or another. It, it probably does shut down some innovation. So I think you're right. That's an important role of outside perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you, you can see it with sort of a, a beginner's mind. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the word I was looking for. You know, you, you've seen a lot of industries. You've worked in a lot of industries and, and now you're in Walgreens. Could you maybe, you know, anyone who's thinking about doing UX design, service design, kind of for pharmacy, healthcare, what are some of the th- things that now you I would say looking back you're you're more aware of or appreciative and things people have to be um you know conscious about yeah it's a good question i mean it, there's a few things about walgreens that are interesting consideration so one of them is that at the core of our business we're a pharmacy right and pharmacies and this is Sounds a little awkward to say, but pharmacy's best customers are people who are old and sick, usually, right? So our, you know, quote unquote best customers might have five to ten prescriptions. They might have 
two or three or five conditions that they're battling. And those are the people that need us the most as a pharmacy, right? And the, But then we live in a space in digital that's really focused on innovation and being out there more on the cutting edge and pushing digital and, and things like that. And those two kind of aspects don't always mix really great. So, you know, if you think about, you know, in your head, the persona of a, of a sick person, they may not be the same persona you have in your head as someone who's going to really adopt digital really easily. So it's a really interesting challenge. And, you know, of course, creativity is often driven by constraints, right? But like, so one aspect that we have to think about in the pharmacy and health space is if we are going to innovate and um, push digital and do new things, we have to be careful not to leave anybody behind, meaning that you know, we, it, it would be very difficult for us to take a lot of our processes or ways of working and just make them 100% digital because many of our patients either A, would not adopt those things, or we'd be removing some part of their experience that they actually really like. So, for example, we hear from a lot of our patients that they like going to the pharmacy in person because it's... um a friendly place and there's people there they can talk to and they might be sort of lonely. So there's a, you know, it's a, it's a community and almost like a mental health advantage to have that pharmacy there. So like, let's say we're thinking about something that's going to really automate the process quite a bit um, or, you know, take some of the human element out of it. That might be awesome for uh, some subset of the patients, but for some, it, it could be a huge turnoff and actually be taking away some of that trust and, and what they count on a, a company like ours for. So, so it's an interesting kind of dichotomy where we want to continue to innovate and push and things like that. But we also have to be mindful of like, you know, not just abandon the aspects of the Walgreens total, like omni-channel experience that some people really count on. I was thinking of another example of that too, where you know, we were talking, this was a while back, but we were talking about this concept of the Amazon Go store, right? So if anyone hasn't been in Amazon Go store, you use the app, you scan the app to get in the store. And uh, once you're in the store, you can grab anything off the shelf and just walk out, right? And they call it just walk out technology. And they use computer vision and all these cameras and all this, you know, computer magic for that to work, right? So someone brought up the idea like, well, we should do something like that in Walgreens, right? Because we could no longer have a cashier at checkout and it could be this awesome shopping experience. And, you know, forget about the cost and the fact that our stores are way bigger than Amazon Go Store and things like that. But, you know, I in my head, back to that human element, I'm thinking about if we required somebody to download an app and scan it to get into our store, I mean, half of our customers would never walk in the store again, right? Yeah, so, like, you know, there, there, yeah. So there are these real, like, sort of human elements we have to keep in mind in our space of, you know, healthcare and retail and all that. Yeah, yeah. You, you make a good point that probably a good chunk of your persona won't create wants and craves uh, some of that human touch. And uh, I've talked to some industry that I forget which uh, company I talked to, but they thought about it kind of similar to you, where yeah. But, being service oriented, maybe instead of reducing the, the human touch, really it's, you know, when you th they think about technology, they think about automating the stuff in the back office or, or non-customer facing, right? Like how do we automate the, and make more digital the stuff that the customer doesn't have to, you know, and, and gain efficiencies that way. And then on the customer side, it's, it's maybe using technology to augment the service provider 
uh, and not necessarily that way they can be a much more effective service provider versus you yeah. know, taking away the human element completely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and those kinds of things like automation and other efficiencies, you can make the argument that in, in a healthcare setting, if you can automate things that are very repeatable or task-driven stuff, then those that personnel can spend more of their time on the higher touch aspects of talking to people and helping them and things like that. And, and it's interesting in the pharmacy because one of the challenges we have that we're talking about all the time and always working on is that we essentially have, I mean, we have the drive-through and we have the pharmacy in store. We also have delivery, but regardless of the kind of prescription or prescriptions that the patient is getting, the experience is pretty much the same. So whether you are someone who's going to pick up your monthly birth control pills versus someone who has five comorbid conditions and is in very serious like health uh, trouble, the experience is essentially the same for those two people. So how do we find ways to use technology and streamline things and automation to support that first use case, which might be 100% about convenience and speed and things like that, but have a different experience for people who want the higher touch or need the higher touch and want to come into this, to the store and need to talk to the pharmacist and things like that. So how do we find ways to like separate those out and, and you know, essentially let the customer choose what experience is right for them? Yeah, exactly. Like a, a younger persona like myself, I think I'm okay and comfortable with technology. So like modalities like chat or SMS and, and all that stuff and, and, like the Amazon Go would be great, but then a different persona would be very different. Uh, yeah, I mean, even go. things like, you know, lots of other retailers are doing in um, like, say, lock or pickup, unattended pickup, right? I mean, yeah, there's a huge continuum with that, obviously. And on one end is maybe, you know, picking up your Chipotle off the shelf, like it's pretty low risk. You know, there's probably people who are worried about that, though, still. But then, you know, you go to Home Depot and pick up your order from a locker, right? scan the locker, you know, things like that, that we've talked about. It's, it's not surprising that we would think about things like unattended locker pickup of prescriptions or retail orders and things like that. And, you know, again, like you said, you and I would probably love that because we would, whatever small perception of risk we might have, we're totally okay trading that in for the speed and efficiency, but there are plenty of other people who would be like, well, how do I know that someone else isn't going to get my prescription or, you know, how does that locker work and what happened, you know, <laughs> yeah. how do I do that on my phone? And, you know, does my uh, flip phone have that technology? <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, figuring out how do we sort of personalize that experience is a, is a big, big push. Yeah. Speaking of food lockers, I think pre-pandemic, there was this restaurant in the Bay Area where you're, the, the experience was you you come in, you, you order from a tablet, and then there's nobody in front of the house. It's just like a wall of, of like glass, lock, like microwave size lockers yeah. with, with like almost like screen, translucent screens. And then the, you, you get a number, right? With, from the tablet, you get a number. And then when your order's ready, that, that, that door lights up with that number and you could just go to that number and open the door and, yeah. and grab your food. So they, they totally reduce the, uh, the Bay Area being the Bay Area, I think, you know, sure. that was okay. And it was like pick up and go type food, but it was a, it, it's interesting experience, a very convenient, you know, grab and go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah. But I, I can see that, you know, yeah, for, for some people with medication and, and stuff like that, pick, picking up and go, like, yeah, your birth control or something, that that, that yeah. would be something very convenient. Well, and not Lowers. to, like, not to focus this so much on pharmacy, but there's other interesting angles to it, too, which is, like, a lot of what you can and can't do in the pharmacy is driven by state boards of pharmacy. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have 50 states, there's 50 boards of pharmacy, and they all have their own rules and uh regulations and frankly some of them are fairly antiquated so you know that's that's another big aspect of our business is sort of the regular regulatory constraints so you know we find ourselves sometimes piloting things in certain locations where the regulations are not as strict and then we might come up with a solution that we can only roll out in half the states or something like that just because everybody kind of has their own own regulations so that, that presents a challenge. I mean, you, you might have some good ideas to, to innovate and create efficiencies, but then, so is there some sort of vetting process of like, well, even if we did this, we can only roll it out in 10 states. So maybe it's not worth the, the hassle or something like that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's a combination of things. So one is kind of what you said, which is like, we have to make this analysis, like this is really cool, but if we can only roll it out in this limited area, should we bother? And probably the answer might be no. The other thing though, is that, Walgreens and I'm sure CVS and every other company that does what we do, they uh, have pretty sophisticated like lobbying arms. So, <laughs> you know, we have people that, you know, know all the folks that are on the boards of pharmacy around the country. So, so there's always this sort of lobbying by companies to like try to get some of those rules changed or updated. And I think a lot of them are just there because they've been that way for 50 years or whatever, and they weren't right. changed. So, so we can also work on something in more of a pilot or MVP mode with the hope or the at least optimistic thought that like at some point those rules will change and kind of catch up with a you know modern world and we'll be able to roll those things out more broadly. Got it. Talked about talk to us about what good design is for you and your team. I feel like I'm in danger of saying a lot of buzzwords like intuitive and things like that. Um, I mean, for the work we do, it, it's got to be simple and straightforward. Again, not earth shattering back to sort of who our customers are. We don't need things to be super flashy. I mean, we want everything to look good and on brand and, and clean, but our digital properties are more about task completion. We do a fair amount of marketing and you know trying to cross promote and things like that. But at the end of the day, our customers are mostly in particularly in the app, they're using it to complete tasks. So keeping those kind of pathways clean and and intuitive and without barriers is is kind of the most important thing for us. And what that means from a like hands-on design perspective is often that we like I was talking about not leaving customers behind when we want to innovate. We also can't leave them behind with our interface. So we have to, like, we're not generally taking a lot of risks in terms of like interaction design and things like that. So, you know, we're, I mean, simple things like swiping and menus being hidden behind hamburger menus and three dots meaning this or that, like some of those things that like you and I five years ago knew meant something maybe our customers only just starting to understand what those things mean. Right. And maybe they and still don't, <laughs> maybe they still don't. Yeah. And, and again, a huge range of customers. So particularly in healthcare where we're dealing with sort of mission critical things like filling medications, we have to be continue to try to grow and keep up with current best practices and things like that. 
but also again, not leave anyone behind. And, and, and then a lot of that comes back to our design research team, which is, you know, for nearly everything we do as we're producing wireframes and comps and prototypes, we're putting those in front of real customers on a regular basis, either in person in a lab or online and getting feedback early and often on, on that design work. So, you know, we can understand where people are getting hung up, what they understand, what they don't understand, those kinds of things. And obviously, you know, there's always going to be exception cases where there's some user of digital that just doesn't get it. And you're sitting there watching a, a research session and saying like, just click on that thing, man. Come on, like it's right there, you know. Uh, so obviously, we can't design for that person always. But you know, as you take sort of the, I don't know, the kind of the bell curve of users and understand where they're at with our experiences. I mean, it's super important to inform the design accordingly. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the role of user research, and you have these. You know, you're bringing people into a lab, but are you also doing in-field studies, or are you asking people to do? Yeah. You know, remote, are you doing remote yep. studies and surveys and all that stuff? Yeah, uh, kind of all of the above. So when our team started out, when we were, you know, really just 100% focused on digital, consumer digital, almost all of our research was basically lab-based usability testing. We'd bring people in, sit them down with a prototype and guide them through it and see where they got stuck and things like that. Over the years, we've sort of expanded our design toolkit. So, you know, I mentioned we work with the store teams as well. So it's, it works best for us to actually be in the stores when we're working with them, because not only are they using the digital tool to try to do things, but there's a whole nother layer of all the things that are going on in the store and the different tasks they're being asked to do. And, you know, team members in the store are constantly interrupted. So, you know, they're stocking a shelf and someone comes and asks them where the Q-tips are, then they have to stop doing that. And then on the way back, they get another question or manager asks them to do something else. So like, there's a lot of these like sort of ethnographic kind of things that, that we have to pay attention to. And it's interesting with the store team members. Um, we also spent a ton of time with things like lost and stolen devices. I don't know if we were surprised or not, but when this mobile platform was launched, we found out that a, a lot of devices went missing. So we had to figure out how to handle that in terms of things like locking the screen and, you know, audio alerts to try to find a device or... These are testing devices? They're just... These are, no, these are like permanent store-owned devices that we gotcha, gotcha. that the yeah, store team members are using to run right, the store. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and then we, we even did things like on the lock screen of the device, basically put a note there, like a vis visible screen that says, if you steal this device it's not going to do you any good because the moment you leave Walgreens, it's not going to work anymore. Right. I mean, we said it in a nicer way, but lots of these yeah. things about like trying to... So, so anyway, these are just regular mobile phones instead of... They're like, they're like, like a ruggedized, it's a Zebra, zebra. device gotcha. yeah, with like a rugged case and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 We just um, interviewed someone from Zebra. A oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty... I mean, it's this device. I forget the, the model, yeah. but I mean, you see them pretty much... You see them a lot in retail, right? Yeah. But anyway, back to the question about research. So we're out in the stores doing research with with team members in person. And, and this is all, everything I talked about so far is really what we consider like validation or evaluative research, meaning we're designing something and we're going to put it in front of you and get your feedback. Where we're moving more toward and always trying to like move further, like upstream is more in kind of a generative or discovery-based research where we haven't even yet design something, but we're really doing research that's more about just like understanding mm -hmm. customers' pain points and how they live and work and 
deal with their health and things like that so that we can also use that kind of research to really just inform what we're even going to go work on, you know? So, so trying to balance those two buckets of research uh, is pretty critical. And then, you know, one other thing to note about research is that in a big company like ours, there are lots of kinds of research functions. Ours is very specific to sort we call it design research because it's very much about informing the design work we do. And it's always some sort of omni-channel work. There are lots of other research com- company that do things more like more quantitative market research and things like that. And we have a good relationship with them. So we sort of share information and like we consume their research and vice versa. And sometimes research ends up being kind of a two-pronged approach. Maybe we do something more quantitative, then we follow it up with more qualitative research, but it has to be a cooperative effort. When, when you say omnichannel, do you, do you mean like web, phone, mobile, email, voice, yeah. So I think the term omni-channel often is used just to mean digital. And we've been trying to like change that. So for us, omni-channel usually means that the experience contains digital and non-digital aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I was talking about before with, you know, most of our customer journeys involving the store at some point. So yeah. everything we do is, has a digital component, but it's not entirely digital, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the designers are all also thinking about kind of the offline experience as well. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned our service design team. It's a newer area of our group where, you know, we have been trying to really think about that end-to-end experience, like I said. So our service designers, they have an interesting role because they're helping kind of design an experience. But a lot of that really comes down to almost like being a consensus builder or like a gatherer of people. So if we sit down and work through a like a service blueprint or something like that, the, the service designer is designing that artifact, but all of the inputs to it are coming from lots of different places. So yes, there's digital, but there's also like store operations and there's learning and development and there might be like the store architecture. So our service designers are working on how do we work with this cross-functional team and help all get consensus on this experience we're trying to build, which is omni-channel. But then when we sort of all agree what we're going to do, lots of different kinds of teams have to go out and make it happen. And we happen to be in the digital space. So we're going to go help make happen the UX aspects of it. So we're going to design the screens and all those kinds of things. But there's all these other things that have to happen that we don't have control over. Like someone has to create a training plan for the store employees so they know how to provide this new service or, you know, someone needs to make sure we have the proper staffing in the store to, to do all. So, so there's all these aspects that we don't have any control over, mm-hmm. but our service design team is really trying to help at the front end to establish what all those touch points are and all these things that need to be done so that we can at least all play from the same playbook and then go off and make these things happen. Yeah. What are some of the artifacts of a service designer? You know, what are some of yeah. the outputs and then you know, with digital, it's either it's quite easy to put in analytics, right, and just start to yeah. get data on how your design is performing. With service design, what's what's kind of the analogy there? Yeah, so analytics and service design don't go great together. I would say <laughs> just because of the nature of the work. So the, the the there's really two primary artifacts that our service designers use, and these terms of which we use, I'll say up front are used by other companies and other individuals in different ways, like to mean different things. So 
one of the things that we use is what we call a, a journey map. And we usually clarify to say it's a current state journey map. So for what, us, what that means is that we, if there's a part of an experience that we are investigating, like let's talk, let's say it's the pharmacy drive-through experience. A journey map for us means that we're going to absorb and or conduct any research or insights that we have about that experience. So it could be observation, it could be past research, it could be surveys. And what the journey map will do is it will visually lay out what that experience currently is for our customers. And it looks like a bunch of kind of swim lanes, horizontal swim lanes, but you'll see what the customer is doing at each step of that process. You'll see what the team members are doing at each step of that process, where they intersect, where they don't. We call that like the front stage and the backstage, right? So the front stage are all the things a customer can see backstage mm-hmm. is stuff that happens behind the scenes, what technology is uh, enabling at each step. And maybe most importantly, what, what pain points or barriers the customers or team members are experiencing at any given stage of that journey. So that's what we call a current state journey map. The other big artifact we use is what we call a service blueprint. And from like 10 feet away, these two things look pretty similar. But the difference with the service blueprint for us is that it's really designing the future state of a given experience. So rather than saying, here's what it is now, this is what we want it to be in the future. So it has a lot of the same characteristics in terms of those, you know, touch points between customers and team members and physical space and all the different things that need to happen. Sometimes that service blueprint will have an aspect of, of time, meaning we might start by blueprinting out sort of the blue sky like perfect experience as far as we know but then we might need to break it down by like phase phase development right because we might not be able to do everything at once so we may find a way within that blueprint to say this is sort of the mvp experience and we're going to add on this and this and this right over time and that's the that's the artifact i was sort of talking about before where we're really trying to use it's a community artifact, right? I mean, we're, our service designers are, you know, sort of the, the pixel pusher on that one, but the yeah. contents of that are really coming as part of group discussion and group effort on what we think that experience should be and what all the aspects and considerations are. Yeah. Are there any design tools that are best suited for service design? You know, like UI obviously is very well known. You'd use Sketch or Figma yeah. or WXD. Yeah, it's a good question because it. I feel like we're kind of falling into two different camps on this one and this may be with just because my background as a picky designer a lot of that work when we would do it we would use like just illustrator or or, uh, indesign because you we want to make it look nice right however i think the trend that we're getting more and more to is more of a a little bit lower fi model so we use things like miro because we can have more of a like group particularly online kind of group like session and people can move things around and add things and ultimately oh, we love at the end, yeah. <laughs> we're totally so, sold <laughs> yeah it's like ultimately at the end of that you know the service designer still is going to kind of whip it into shape and make it look decent and stuff like that but that kind of approach takes away a little bit of the you know specialness of the design and the designer um, it makes it a little more democratic and a little more usable or i've even we haven't I'm, we've done this you know in certain 
situations where the service blueprint is done in Excel, which is you know mm. about the ugliest it can be, but it, <laughs> but it's again like a, a universal tool essentially. So, yeah. and sometimes we do these things in combination. So, like I said, we might use Miro in a in a group setting and then take the output of that and make it into a nicer looking map. Sure. And same with Excel, you know. But it's just a matter of sort of how much kind of co-design do we want to do with our colleagues. Yeah. As we get up on the hour, are there any good books or resources your team you point your team to, or that you constantly refer to, or you recommend? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say there's like a big one, but you know, I, I you know, for me personally, I'm on Twitter a lot, and I don't tweet a ton, but I'm sort of lurking all the time and follow a lot of designers and things like that. So I think a lot of it just kind of comes through general immersion. In terms of more formalized sources, I think like Rosenfeld Media does a great job. They, they produce design books and some conferences and things like that. Jared Spool's always kind of there. You know, He's been doing conferences and things like that for a long time. And he has a series of, um, you know, they do online like lectures and talks and things like that, that I think are usually pretty good. You know, And, and a lot of us, I think the role of books and formalized you know, resources is tend to diminish a little bit just in the age of social media, right? So it's more about following folks and things like that. And then I guess the other thing I would say too is I, you know, you know, for better or worse, I'm leading a pretty big team. So I'm fairly far away from the hands-on design now. I mean, I'm the most design I do is usually like a whiteboard kind of a thing, you know? So I, I, I'm, the resources I'm using are often more about like leadership and management and, you know, workflow and stuff like that. So I, I think uh, HBR, uh, Harvard Business Review has a really great series of management related articles that they put out. And then of course there's like Forrester and things like that, that are kind of standard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to that journey. Now I feel like, yeah, I don't really live in the tools anymore. And I actually have a little in the background, that's kind of like that, that big giant pad. And I, I do, you know, boxes and lines is kind of the, the design I do these days. But yeah, I do a lot of reading on leadership and management and how to lead a team. <laughs> Those are the kind of like my necessary yeah. skills these days. So yeah, yeah for sure. Plus, plus one on the HBR stuff. So yeah. that we'll link that in the show notes. Very cool, John. Thank, thank you so much for being on the show. And it's been many years since we uh, last worked together. I was yeah. also on the Northern Trust Project, by the way. Rounder, yeah, so. it's going back. It's going <laughs> back. Yeah, no, great. It's, I appreciate you having me. It's been fun talking, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks, thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good seeing you and good catching up. Thanks. All right, take care. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What Is UX. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guests and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.